Today is Tuesday, February 1st. The title for our devotional is Unity in the Trinity. This week, we're looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer and his emphasis on unity. This is taking place at the Last Supper meal, around the table, as we've been exploring in this campaign. Yesterday, we read through the whole scene of chapters 13 to 17 for context. If you haven't done that yet, I would encourage you to do so sometime this week. Reading through the whole thing will give you a great picture of the scene as a whole and the intimacy of this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And this is, remember, is the last meal that he's sharing with them. So he's saying some of the most important things that he wants his disciples to remember at this meal. So, and again, if you haven't done that yet, I would encourage you to go read through the whole thing of John chapters 13 to 17. The text we're focusing on is in the last part of Jesus' prayer. He has already prayed for the disciples specifically. Now he's transitioned to praying for those who will believe on the part of the disciples' message. This, of course, includes us. John 17, 20 to 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. First thing we see here in verse 21 is how the unity of the church is somehow tied to the unity of the Trinity. In some fashion, then, the unity of the church is analogous to the unity in the Trinity. Father and Son are united together. Jesus says, remember, just as you are in me and I am in you. Yet they are distinguishable persons. Again, note that Jesus is praying to the Father. And as John 1 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, meaning distinct from God, and the Word was God, meaning of the same nature as God. In verse 22, Jesus goes on to say that He has given believers his glory, which he received from the Father, so that they will be one as he and the Father are one. Jesus is in the Father. He is also our perfect mediator. Therefore, as our divine perfect mediator between us and God, we who believe in the gospel of the apostles, the message they have communicated and has been passed down throughout the centuries, are in Christ and united to the Father through Jesus as well. This teaching of Jesus is inevitably shrouded in some degree of mystery because the nature of the Trinity is a mystery. Yet, we can take a couple of key points from this. One, the unity of the church is grounded in the unity of the Trinity. When we consider the nature of God, we find reason for unity and participation in community. God exists in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has existed in this way for all eternity. Therefore, John can say later in his uh, epistle, in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Just as the Father, Son, and the Spirit exist in unity, so the church is to exist in unity then as well. Community is an essential component of the Christian life, just as community is essential in the nature of God. Second, the unity of the church is analogous to the unity of the Trinity. Just as the three persons of the Trinity are individual persons forming one God, so in the church we are individual persons, yet one body. 
in Christ. We can experience unity in the midst of our individual diversities. As we said last week, unity in the church then is not some pie-in-the-sky ideal of relative minor significance. It's grounded in the Trinity and analogous to the Trinity, the nature of God himself. Those aren't small things. In conclusion, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you read through that a little more carefully, you'll see here Paul is, again, expressing the unity of the church, calling them to unity, and he does so by including Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in his call for unity. So the nature of the Trinity is what grounds our pursuit of unity, and also somehow our unity as a church should reflect and be analogous to the unity of the Trinity. Today, I invite you to reflect on the nature of the Trinity. How cool is it that God exists as a unified Trinity, three persons in one God? Worship him in all of his wondrous splendor and magnificence. How glorious are his ways and even more his transcendent nature, which is beyond what we can comprehend and understand. And so we worship and give him praise and glory that he deserves. Secondly, how does God's existence as a Trinity inform your concept of your nature? Individual, yet essentially in relationship. Is your concept of self and relationship rooted in God, as revealed in Scripture, or in our cultural concepts of self, individualism, or libertarianism? 